This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What's the worst advice you've received? Oh, God. Go and work for Harvey Weinstein. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Happy New Year to my No Limits family. I hope everyone had a great holiday season. Hopefully that feeling of it's all behind us isn't too depressing. This is our first episode of 2018. It's been about a year since we launched, and I want to thank all of you so much for the support, for making No Limits a reality, for listening, for subscribing, for leaving great reviews, for sending me notes on Twitter, the tweets that you send. I sincerely appreciate it so, so much. And we are really looking forward to continuing to build on what we've been creating here at No Limits and sharing more amazing guests with you. So without further ado... On today's episode, we have a woman who has made a massive mark on the publishing industry. It cannot be understated. From chronicling the life of Princess Diana to completely turning Vanity Fair around, she is an author. Tina Brown knows how to get your attention. Whether it's 1980 or 2018, she continues to captivate the audience. Tina Brown, welcome to No Limits. Good to be here, Rebecca. I'm thrilled to have you here. You have... An incredible story. 25 years old, you become editor of Tatler. Correct. You move to the U.S. and at 30 years old, ultimately become the editor of Vanity Fair. You worked there at 29, but you ultimately become the editor, completely turned the magazine around. It was desperate for a turnaround at that point. No advertisers. People weren't stepping up to the plate. You did. And now the Vanity Fair Diaries, your book, and you've published your diary entries from 1983 to 1992. Why on earth would you do such a thing? (laughs) You know, I was going to write a memoir and I have always kept a diary from the age of about 10, a voluminous diary over many years. And I was kind of going through the diaries for the memoir and I came to the whole kind of section of Vanity Fair and I just found it, frankly, such a wonderful surf through the wild ride of the 80s. And there was so much of it. I mean, that was the time I was most prolific. I mean, it was a sort of every night I would come back and write these voluminous entries because my eyes were wide with having arrived in America and I just wanted to unload to the pages of my diary. And so I thought, you know what, I would have to cut so much of this to do a, a real memoir. Mm. And I don't really want to because there's something really fun about not knowing what's going to happen next. And in a way, it's the kind of the story of the ingenue, you know, who kind of gets there, arrives in a taxi bumping along from, you know, Kennedy Airport. With, with Dr. Ruth on the radio. With listening to, you know, the driver is listening to <laughs> Dr. Ruth Westheimer graphically describing a sex act. And I'm thinking, what am I doing? Where am I? How can this, you know, what am I, where am I coming to? And from that moment, really, it's, it's the sort of the journey of this sort of young woman who is, who really doesn't know anything about America, understanding, learning about America, battling with the sort of media big shots and coming into the court of Condé Nast. And, and it, it just felt like a, a, a very amusing 
narrative once I edited that line, as it were, out of the diaries. I think what's interesting, you are a natural observer, and we talk a lot on No Limits about things that might appear to be things that would harm you or be harmful to you, but being an observer, even being an outsider, is part of your strength. Yes, well, I've always been a kind of beady-eyed observer. I have a writer's temperament in that sense. And I've always, my father was a movie producer, and I was sort of raised to think about life as material, you know, the search for material always. So I guess I was raised with that, you know, uh, mindset, if you like, of of everything is is the material. What is it going to be used for later? And that's really been my approach all along to every experience I've ever done, good and bad, has been like, oh, my gosh, this is such amazing material. It's going to become something, you know, magazine piece, a book or something. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's been my attitude throughout, really. I remember when I was starting out as a journalist, and I still do this, but everything was a story to me. It's true. And if you have that gene, which you obviously do like me, I mean, you're a kind of a news junkie and you're like an open pour. You know, everything kind of comes pouring in. And you think and about you, how it's going to work and how you'll play it and, out. And you think, my God, that's an amazing story. That's an incredible lead. Does anybody know what's going to happen next? And it's just either you have that story greed or you don't. Speaking of your father, you got kicked out of school three times and your father was always there to do what most parents wouldn't do. (laughs) My father always took the view and one of his favorite lines uh, when he used to come, when he was summoned by the head teacher to deal with me, he would say, how terrible for you to have failed with this extraordinary child. And then it would be, (laughs) Come on, Christina, we're, we're leaving. You know, it's like out we would go. It's like, bring your case, bring your trunk, we're going. And head held high, you know, my parents would sweep out with me in their wake, you know, carrying a huge suitcase full of, you know, things that I've been kicked out of school with. I, this is going to sound terrible, but it reminds me of the bumper sticker that's like, my kid can beat up your kid. Like the, the parent who's proud for the wrong reason. But I'm... I, it I'm doesn't sure seem like I'm he sure was it, encouraging it, you to sure beat like anybody terrible up. parenting. I'm sure it would fail every <laughs> test. You know, no accountability. But here I am. I was always a very disruptive kid. So, you know, he, he kind of endorsed that, which is perhaps why I'm a journalist today. Disruption. And to make that decision to be, you know, in your early 20s, mid 20s, living where you grew up in the United Kingdom to make that call to come to New York. How did you think that through at the time? Well, it was a bit of a dance. I mean, you know, I, I, I was editing Tatler, which is a small, you know, uh, glossy magazine in England with a kind of insurgent band of young friends and Turks. We had a tiny budget, but we made a great success out of it. We were bought by Condé Nast magazines, which is, you know, the mighty American publishing house. And once we were in the kind of Condé Nast family, we therefore became much more cognizant of what was happening, you know, in the, in, in the mothership in New York. And we began to hear these kind of distant strains of the launch of this new amazing magazine, which was bringing back the old legendary magazine Vanity Fair from the 30s. And, uh, you know, Vanity Fair, I had all the collected books about Vanity Fair because I was always a magazine junkie, loved magazines, you know, defunct magazines, current magazines. I just was a junkie for magazines. So Vanity Fair had a lot of glamour and appeal to me. You know, the great photographs by Steichen and Steiglitz and all of these great people and the pieces by Claire Booth Luce and, and, and Dorothy Parker. You know, it was a very glamorous era in publishing. So when I heard about the launch of it, I began to get a little sort of tingle thinking, you know, wow, I wonder what that's going to be like. But then when it was launched, you know, it was a total turkey. They they got the first editor wrong. They put another editor in and he was wrong. And it just went from being this glamorous icon to being a bit of a laughing stock. at which point they thought at Condé Nast, well, let's just give this young woman in London a go. You know, we bought this magazine in London. Why don't we just give her a go? And they brought me in first as a, as a sort of consultant for the first few months. 
And I was able to, therefore, it was a bit like being at summer camp before real school. I was able to look around and realize what it was that they were doing wrong. I mean, it just seemed that they had misconceived entirely the way the magazine should go. It was Did it concern touch. you at all that going into a loser could be the downfall? You know, I think when you're young and sort of uh, very ambitious, which I was, I mean, in many ways, this book is a kind of serenade to young ambition. I was very sort of full of aspiration and full of energy and full of self-confidence in a way. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, this is this ridiculous. I mean, I, I, I these guys can't, they don't know what a magazine is. I know what a good magazine is because Tatler would, was a very good magazine. We had no budget, but we did have a brilliant young staff and they were doing amazing things. My motto there was, if you don't have a budget, get yourself a point of view. So, I mean, I had a real point of view about everything and I thought, this magazine has no point of view. I can bring this point of view, which was, which was my own kind of skepticism of the world. And I wanted to do it, I realized, by the end of my consultancy. But I went back to London. I didn't think that there was going to be a job for me. I thought the second editor was probably going to stay there for the next couple of years. But then I got the call, you know, which was to, would I come back for an interview? And I was on holiday at the time, actually, with my husband in, the, in, in Barbados, as it happened. But I pretended that I was like, it was no trouble to come to New of York. Course. Of course. What about tomorrow? Sure, I said, in the beach. You know, I had no clothes, right? I had only had a sarong with me. You know, so you I had to make it work. Exactly. I came into New York. I went rushed off and bought a, something to wear and had the job interview. I was offered the job on condition I started right after Christmas. And so I didn't go home again for three years. I, I literally had arrived in New York to edit Vanity Fair with a suitcase full of sarongs and flip-flops. And stayed for the next three years before I really went back to London, uh, you know, before I got my head up to go back to London and get all my things. And, and, you know, we rented our house and all of that. So it was a very, very exciting time. And I was plunged into just turning around a flop. And, uh, you know, it, it, I, I just dug in straight away. And, you know, I had wonderful time in a sense because there was a lot of good material, a lot of good editors and a lot of very, very wonderful things that were in the drawers of that office that no one was looking at and I went in over the weekend and I started ransacking the art department looking for something I could publish in the first issue and I opened a drawer and lo and behold there was this amazing unpublished portfolio by Andy Leibovitz who'd been sort of hired but wasn't being used at the time and I, un I, un I unpacked this folder and in it were these fabulous pictures that Annie had taken of comedians pictures like you know the famous Whoopi Goldberg in a bath of, of milk you know which was such it became an iconic Annie photograph or Pee Wee Herman hanging upside down from a, a lamp, you know, hilarious pictures that she took. And I said, let's call this, it was the April issue. I said, let's publish this in eight pages called April Fool's. Of course. And it was just magical. It really was. And, uh, and uh, you know, we, we sort of went from there. I redesigned the magazine with the art department in a long weekend. We made it much crisper and, and stronger looking and threw out all the kind of busy typefaces and all the kind of messy layout that was so confused looking and did a, something that was very strong and clean and really created the look of the magazine as it is today. I mean, it's changed very little. We created a front of book section called Vanities and a back of book section, you know, called Fanfare, which was about the arts. And we, you know, we did a... a change the covers for the for into being kind of well-known celebrities from which it, it it's continued to this day and provocative and provocative the first cover was um it's called blonde ambition and we did we did a wonderful portfolio by helmut newton of all the sort of rising blonde actresses in hollywood and we called it blonde ambition and i put this new actress daryl hannah as it was on the cover blindfold carrying the two uh, two gold oscar statuettes like the, the statue of justice you know uh, blind justice and uh, it was very sexy and provocative and had a kind of slightly edgy S&M flavor to it which I wanted to do because I said you know we've got to show right away this is getting away from stuffy 
sort of New Yorker wannabe, which is really what it was. And immediately there was a, a buzz about it. How much pushback did you get at the time when you came in with all these new ideas? Well, it was it was a... Uh, you know, not a friendly staff, obviously, because I'd inherited a staff that had had two editors in nine months, and they certainly weren't looking for me coming in from London. Who was I, you know? So there was a lot of uh, political difficulties for me within. My major thing I had to do was to sort of circumvent the politics of Condé Nast itself, because it was like the court of Louis the Fifteenth at the time. You know, there was Cy Newhouse, who was the august uh, family owner who owned the, uh, the Condé Nast, and he was a quirky sort of mercurial character, shy, small, short guy with a sort of interesting reluctance really in power, but very, in a way, capricious mm-hmm. and, and strong-willed and had very strong ideas about what uh, a publishing company should be, good ones too. He made it into a powerhouse. And then there was the editorial director who was really the sort of editorial power there who was called Alexander Lieberman and he was this Russian emigre, very elegant, very patrician. Um, you know, for, for an editor, it was a bit like being an artist with Picasso upstairs in the attic. You know, he would come down very with his sort of balletic back, you know, and he would sort of, you know, wander through with a very Douglas Fairbanks moustache and it was all very grand and it was very sort of political, lots of power politics. So one of the fun things about reading the diaries was the sort of daily negotiation of politics, uh, trying to figure out, you know, how to be a manager of, uh, you know, in a much bigger pool. Condé Nast seemed to me an amazingly intimidating place mm-hmm. after my little tiny job in London. I felt it was like, General Motors or something with, you know, an HR department and a lawyer <laughs> department and a this department. There was and a structure and an org chart. <laughs> there was an org chart and somebody came in and asked me how I wanted to design my office. I was kind of astonished. <laughs> right. I just said, blah, 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 a round table, you know. <laughs> so it was all very exciting. And at one point, I mean, in those days, Condé Nast was such a kind of social place and 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 you know the, the the editors used to go for lunch at the four seasons which you know it's 250 bucks for a salad at the four seasons but that's where the editors were supposed to go for lunch and i remember my first lunch there alexander lehman came down and said my dear i hear i had a piece of rather difficult news yesterday i said what was that he said well i hear you had quite the wrong table at lunch i said what do you mean he said you were sitting i gather you were sitting in the gallery i said well yes i was sitting in the upstairs at the restaurant he said my dear that is siberia he said <laughs> i don't know what he meant siberia i said what do you mean he said you should be on the main floor my dear i you should never be sitting in the gallery i will make sure that we call the maitre d and and make sure that you're seated in the appropriate place in the restaurant and i thought as i read this i thought this is unbelievable or funny really to read now when god knows i mean pe- people's expense accounts i mean 250 bucks for lunch i mean you'd be sort of fired on the spot probably yes. to do that but this was Colin asked in the 80s and this is what every editor you know was was allowed it was the good life back then apparently it was a pretty good life i have to say it was uh you know it was a time when magazines were very confident and uh affluent and tons of advertising i mean vanity fair didn't have any advertising when i arrived but, you know, Condé Nast itself was booming. And, you know, to be an editor then was to be a very powerful figure. You know, if you were the editor of Time or, or Newsweek, you know, you were a demigod with a building saying Time and a building saying Newsweek. All of these things have changed, of course, since digital disruption. So it now begins, now does feel very much of a sort of portrait of a vanished age, which mm-hmm. makes it, I think, even more piquant to read, really. One thing that blows me away is, Given how ambitious and assertive you are about getting into these roles, you're still not asking for a raise. Right. How can that be? Well, you know, the thing is, as you see in the diary, there's many competing longings and lots of insecurities in there. As I sort of 
on the one hand, yes, I have a lot of bravado about my professional sort of confidence and I know what I can do and I don't have any sort of self-doubt about that. But I've never, you know, I have a traditional, alas, woman's reticence about sort of asking for money for myself. And after a few years, first of all, I was very grateful every time I was given a little bonus here and a little bonus there. And then when I realized I'd turned around this thing from being on death's door to being a juggernaut, I realized that I actually should be getting paid a heck of a lot more than I was. And then I found to my wrath that the editor of GQ was actually being paid more than I was. And that that really did it. You know, I thought that's that's it. I'm going to I'm going to get a raise. But I didn't know how to ask for it. So I actually went to an agent. Um, he was known as a super agent at the time, a lawyer, uh, Morton Tranklow, who was fantastic negotiator. And I said to Mort, Mort, I need your help. And he had a close relationship with Cy Newhouse. He said, listen, I will take care of it. And as it happened, I had just been ed- offered uh, a job by the opposition at Hearst to go and edit Bazaar. And which Mort, is a good time to ask which for is a race. great time to ask for it. So Mort Tranklow said, look, you know, we've just been asked by, by this is a perfect situation and there's a job out there you actually would rather like to do. And I said, yeah, I, I will do that job if, if I don't get a raise because it's a great company and it's a great title. So Mort said, perfect, and let me do the rest. And he went and he did get me a big fat raise. And I, to this day, I kind of think, why, why couldn't I just walk in there and like do that for myself? Why couldn't you? Didn't have the confidence. And I, I still find it very difficult to ask for money for myself. I, I don't mind asking for it for charity. I don't mind doing it as a fundraiser. Uh, you know, I'll be quite aggressive about that if I think it's for something I believe in that I'm raising money for. But if it's about a raise for me, I, I find it very difficult to do. When you look at the research, women don't ask for raises uh, very frequently. And as a result, they don't get the raises right. as a result of that. So it's something to always be thinking of. You obviously throughout your career, um, in addition to Vanity Fair, you went to The New Yorker, you turned things around there, you launched The Daily Beast, you were editor in chief of Newsweek and The Daily Beast simultaneously. You're the CEO and founder of Tina Brown Live Media, where you launched the Women in the World Summit. That was 2010 that you launched yes. that. Yep. I think of that as the original women's conference. Because back then, there really weren't right. the number of women's conferences there that was, we I see think, now. There was kind of two, I think. There was a business conference, and there was the, then I launched Women in the World. Women in the World, yeah. I mean, at that time, it was so hard to get anybody to sponsor it. You know, I had a concept that I wanted to bring together extraordinary women who you don't usually hear from. Africa, India, the Middle East, these extraordinary leaders who were kind of facing down amazing repressions in their own countries and didn't really have any place to, to air their stories, which were remarkable. So that's what I wanted to do. And so we launched Women in the World. I couldn't find anyone to sponsor. And I got one sponsor, HP actually came in as the sort of underwriter. And we went into a small theater in Midtown to launch the first one, which only had 300 attendees. And it sort of immediately found its audience. You know, it, it really was an idea that's come, that the sense that there was a global woman's movement out there that was rustling and murmuring and wanting to be heard. And within two years, we had moved to Lincoln Center with an audience of 2,500. And now Women in the World is now a sort of major platform, not, you know, in here and elsewhere. We've done it in Toronto. We've done it in India. We've done it in London. We've done it in Dubai. So it's now um, something I spend most of my time doing because it's uh, a very, very rewarding and, and exciting. Something that has come up now a lot in the press, and it's coming up certainly at women's conferences. Harvey Weinstein, Indeed. sexual harassment. Harvey Weinstein and you worked together yep. at one point. Yes, I mean, I left the New Yorker to go and edit a new magazine, found a new magazine in partnership with Miramax, which, of course, was Harvey Weinstein, which was, I would say, a less shrewd career move 
as it turned out. In retrospect? In retrospect. Was it at the time? Well, at the time, I think people were pretty stunned that I would leave the New Yorker to go do that. But, you know, I saw at the time I left the New Yorker, I wanted the New Yorker to be more than just a magazine. I'd done it for nearly seven years. It was very exciting. But I felt it should become now a radio show, a book publishing company, a uh, events company. I saw a lot more expansion, in a sense, for the New Yorker. I actually was right, as it turns out, but I was also very early in that perception. And Colin and I didn't see it. They didn't want it. They basically said, go back and edit the magazine. We don't want to do these things. Along comes Harvey Weinstein, who... Uh, pitched me in a sense exactly what I wanted to do you know he said come up to Miramax start a magazine you can do a magazine a book company as well you can do you know we can make um, uh, movies out of out of the stories that seem the most uh, uh, movie worthy etc and he seemed an irresistible idea right? he, he was doing The English Patient he was doing uh, Shakespeare in Love he was doing all of these wonderful movies had and you heard anything at that point about no no one had really i mean no no to me he was a rough diamond tycoon you know hollywood uh, uh character who would a great entrepreneur in his own way a great entertainment um tastemaker so uh i did not hear any of those things and uh you know and i nor did i while i was there except that he clearly like had starlets around him but i never saw anything untoward like like we're hearing now uh, no, I mean, my bigger problems, my problems with him were all just in business. I mean, he was also a very explosive person to work with. And in a way, what we know now, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it certainly shocked and surprised me, but it didn't, it wasn't, you know, at odds, shall we say, with the character that I, that I had to work with. As more and more of these types of allegations, not just with Weinstein, but others in Hollywood and elsewhere are coming out. More and more of the narratives include this open secret idea, the idea that it was allowed to fester, that there were enablers. Why do you think that is in these positions of great power? Well, look, I mean, power is intimidating and people don't want to lose their jobs. I mean, you know, what you can't expect women to go and sort of call call the police when, you know, when they have uh, they're applying for a job and they want that job and somebody's behaving inappropriately. Uh, you know, they, they, they hate it and they, they resent it and they tell other women about it and they tell colleagues about it and they often tell HR about it. But one, one thing we've learned in the last uh, period really is that, you know, HR is often not your friend. I mean, we did actually at Women in the World in April a fabulous panel on this very topic ahead of all of this with the, the lawyer who represents uh, Gretchen Carlson. And she came up with a memorable phrase. She said, you know, HR is not your friend. You know, HR can be like the Stasi. They are basically... They're there to protect management. the company. Yeah, they're right. there to protect the company. So the last thing they're going to do is is empower a protester about sexual harassment to kind of take it further. Their, their, their role is going to be to suppress it, keep it quiet, brush it under the carpet, and preferably like ease her out. So that is what I think is such a, a, a lousy deal in a sense for women, that they do feel, I don't have anywhere to go with this with this protest. You know, I, I just don't. Mm-hmm. Which is why so unfairly women often decide they will be the ones to just leave because they don't like it. And they'd I'd rather opt out than face They'd that. rather opt out, which is why it was so outrageous. I think it was when Donald Trump's uh, junior said, you know, I would expect if Ivanka was harass- harassed, I would expect her just to leave, you know, go and get a job somewhere else. I was thinking, well, actually, A, you know, Ivanka isn't going to get harassed because she's such a powerful girl, you know. And secondly, it's like, wait, you know, this is the whole problem. Women should not feel they have to leave because they're doing a good job and someone's harassing them. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very good there's a reset at this point. Even if it goes somewhat too far, there it is very good that we're having the reset. 
Did you ever face issues like that along the way in your career, and how did you address them? I know you talked about the fact that a number of the men just were disrespectful to you. They would never accept your your successes no. or celebrate them. I, 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 my major issues were, were with that much more than they were about f- ever feeling that I was in an, a, a, a sexually threatened situation. But, you know, I was also lucky because, you know, I was a boss lady, very young, you know, so ultimately my... If you can hire and fire the yeah, guy. Yeah, I mean, I didn't feel... And, and, and Cy Newhouse, for whom I worked for 18 years, you know, was sort of the perfect gentleman. So I never had that issue where a superior, you know, was was making me feel uncomfortable in some way, which I think is a completely unforgivable situation to put a woman in. So in that sense, I was very lucky. And it was only because I was so young and such a, uh, uh, you know, that I was ha- had a big job so young that I think that I was in that position. I think it's very, very different if you're in a position where, you know, you are economically dependent on a person who is uh, definitely uh, expecting sexual favors in return for promotion. And that is something that I think so many women face. Uh, you know, I think in retail and in, and, in, and in the food and beverage business, it's a huge problem. I think it, we've seen it to be a huge problem in Wall Street. We've seen it problem in the military. So this is something that is not discreet to Hollywood mm-hmm. by any means. Yeah, I completely agree. And I've been covering these stories like you have for so many years. And I know it's it's cross industries. Uh, it's it's across age ranges. It's across it's it's just unbelievable how prevalent it actually is. When you look back on all of this, all of the career, what's been the toughest lesson for you to learn along the way? I think how much harder you have to try as a woman to sort of get the same level of opportunity and respect, if you like. I think I think I've always felt, and I think a lot of the women I know feel, you know, you just have you you always feel that you're on on audition in some way that you you it's it's that's what I think is the differential between uh, women who are succeeding and men who are succeeding and, and a sense that you know the standards are higher for you if you're a woman that you have to prove um, and prove and prove you know that you deserve it uh, and that can get a bit old I would say after after a time and uh, I think what's great about having more women moving into positions of power and authority is that those that's women will be able to relax more a bit into their into their roles that they won't feel so constantly on trial uh, as a woman who's also been a hiring manager throughout your career do you see that playing out in the interviews for example do the women show up more prepared on average than the men to the interviews yes i think that's, that's <laughs> certainly true i mean it depends you know listen i've i i, I have worked with amazing men let's really make make absolutely it i mean you know the my colleagues at you know, the Vanity Fair, the New Yorker, ever after. I have worked with the most amazing men at the New Yorker. I brought in some amazing men, you know, David Remnick and Malcolm Gladwell and Jeffrey Tubin and some of these fabulous writers who were very, very wonderful colleagues too and uh, with whom I had a fantastic time. I mean, sometimes I did feel that a man getting bad news from me about the quality of their work was doubly resented. So there was a certain amount of tension at times uh, when I felt that a male writer was feeling you know, doubly sort of angry and somewhat humiliated to be hearing from me that the work wasn't good enough. So I think women managers sometimes have that issue with men that they they resent from a woman manager something they wouldn't resent as much from a male manager. But most of the time I found, uh, you know, it's all been about a wonderful collegiality. Actually, I mean, I you know, I think the Vanity Fair Diaries is 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 really a sort of love affair about a career in a sense. You know that that. Uh, 
you know, I, I love the whole process of making magazines, you know, f- putting pictures on a page, writing captions. I mean, some of the happiest moments in the book are when I'm with my sort of team of writers and editors and, and uh, photographers, and we're all sitting around brainstorming late at night. And it's like putting on a school play, you know, you're all heading for the final moment when the curtain goes up and the magazine goes to press and tremendous warmth and that teamwork, which I think is a very happy thing. And I Hope, you know, that in this kind of digital era when people are so isolated and behind their screens that people will still have the understanding that collaboration and teamwork is just so rewarding. And the sublimation of self into the bigger than you, which is that you're all working towards the same goal, whether it's in team sports or whether it's uh, putting on a magazine or, you know, a, a launch of anything, product or, 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 or newspaper or whatever it is you're doing. It's a very, very exciting thing to to be with a group of people who are each kind of helping each other and supporting each other and respecting each other. It's just nothing like it, really. Are the best of times behind us? I think it's a challenging time. You know, I think it's a very challenging time. There's a lot of atomization, you know. Funny enough, in Vanity Fair in 1991, we ran a wonderfully uh, prescient piece, 19, just on the, just the turn of the decade, actually, 1990. Stephen Schiff, he wrote a piece called Particle People about how the coming sort of computer age was going to uh, f- make us all fly apart. You know, there was less um, you know, coherence uh, mm-hmm. to our world. And I think that that is certainly true, that lack of sort of communal coherence, uh, the constant pursuit of self and and narcissism, you know, in a way uh, dramatized by the selfie. The selfie is the sort of quintessential statement of our times. Have you ever taken a selfie, Tina? You know, I I don't like taking selfies. I mean, (laughs) I just think this endless kind of grinning into a camera you hold out in front of you. It's like it's just so kind of. You know, who cares? It's really embarrassing when you sit there and you try to get the good selfie. You know, the good selfie. And I mean, how many selfies do we keep? You know, I just I don't think that selfies, you know, are the thing pictures that you keep. They really aren't. Well said. Um, So if I'm 22 and I come to you today and I say, Tina, I want to get into this industry. What do you say to me? I say jump into something small and which you have control of. It doesn't have to be a big thing. A small magazine. A small magazine, a small digital site, a small, you know, anything. Because if it's small and it doesn't have much of a budget, but you are the person doing it, it's actually much better than being a cog in a big machine. I mean, I would rather be, you know, putting out a small thing called, you know, uh, dog and hound or something. (laughs) Then I would be an assistant editor at, you know, I don't know, the Wall Street Journal, because I know that I'm going to, you know, you'll learn so much more if you're the person who has to figure it out, do it, you know, you know, no money to get anybody to say yes. You've got to persuade people to do it. You have to then make something of it when it comes in. You have to find a picture. You know, you have to uh, write a headline. You have to, you know, uh, create the social media strategy for someone to read it. You have to, I mean, all of that. Doing it yourself is going to make you so much more valuable as an employee than someone who's just been, frankly, you know, answering the phone and getting the coffee it, for some big shot who takes no notice of you. So I, I would say do that. I would say jump into something small, however unappealing it might look from a distance. What's the worst advice you've received? Oh, God. Go and work for Harvey Weinstein at Miracle. <laughs> <laughs> Who told you to do that? Well, you know, people people I spoke to thought this was, you know, and it was at the time. It seemed like it, but it turned out that it wasn't so. So that's probably not the best advice I've ever received. 
Tina Brown, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Rebecca. And now it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And our No Limits Entrepreneur this week is Kelly Howard. She is the CEO of 860 South, which is a strategic communications agency. She was nominated by Tara Khan Malik. Kelly is currently based in Los Angeles, but she was originally born and raised in Owatonna, Minnesota. Love a Minnesota girl. Love anyone who gets their start there, because I did. <laughs> she graduated from Iowa State University in 2008 with a degree in journalism and mass communications. As I'm sure all of you remember, 2008 was peak financial crisis, therefore a very difficult time to get a job. Kelly says she sent out nearly 400 resumes and received an offer from Kit Morrison and Associates, a fashion, beauty and lifestyle PR firm in the heart of L.A., where she remained for three and a half years before making the move to the communications company Post and Beam in 2013. Kelly spent four years as Post and Beam's West Coast director, and then at the end of 2016, she acquired and rebranded the business and 860 South was born. Kelly made rebranding a priority and streamlined the company's focus to fashion, beauty, and lifestyle. Because there was already an existing business infrastructure in place when she took over, she was able to focus on setting up 860 South as its own entity. One of her biggest challenges has been managing the day-to-day responsibilities, compounded now with the responsibilities it takes to run a business. Kelly says to manage both successfully, it requires her to let go and delegate to the team as needed. She says she couldn't do it without her team, and as a business owner, assembling a team of true talent that you can trust is one of her greatest rewards. If she could go back and give herself advice, she says go with your gut, but recognize that good things take time. She also says don't compare your behind-the-scenes to someone else's highlight reel, as in Instagram. Very good advice. Congratulations to Kelly Howard. I wish you and 860 South continued success. And thank you to Tara for the great nomination. Remember, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as an entrepreneur, send me your nomination to No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from all of you. I love reading your emails, so keep them coming. You can obviously also reach me on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Rebecca Jarvis. Don't forget to use the hashtag No Limits. And before we go, a shout out to the fabulous team here who makes this happen week after week. Our producer, Taylor Dunn, our editor, Michelle Boncardo, our research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the rest of the team here at ABC Radio, Elizabeth Russo, David Rind, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Thanks to all. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.